Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn, if you would please, to Luke chapter 8 as we continue in our series here. Divine Deliverance and Redemption, Luke chapter 8, 26 through 39. If you're like me, there may have been times in your life when you have faced an obstacle. Maybe it's a circumstance, an issue that's so dire, so big, and so overwhelming that you wondered if anyone or anything could help. Ever been in a situation like that? Times in which you seem you have no friends left, your family is unconcerned, and you are left all alone. Many times we will face something that is outside the norm of any medical care. Family intervention, government solution, and self-help guru can offer. Instead, we must look to the one who has the power to grant divine deliverance and redemption. As King David sung, I lifted my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? He answers the question by singing, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Last week we read of Jesus' power and authority over the natural world. With only a word, Jesus calmed the raging storms causing his disciples to wonder who Jesus really was. It it brought them fear to see this. The storm exposed the condition of their heart and the insufficiency of their faith in resting in the presence of Jesus. Today, we see the reason Jesus wanted to go across to the other side in the first place. He takes a detour from his normal pattern to travel to a mainly Gentile region of Palestine because he had a divine appointment with a man who has been suffering under the influence of supernatural forces. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Father, as we read through this, it's going to be difficult for us to comprehend what this man was undergoing the the pain the shame father the the troubles he was we 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 don't have a a modern or postmodern uh comparison really uh to this issue but father it's here for our benefit for our profit to train us in how to live a godly and holy life so father i pray that you give us your wisdom give us your discernment and father i pray that you just bring our attention that we may just be riveted to what you have for us this morning we praise in christ's name Amen. Now, as we read through this passage, as we did earlier, Luke describes six observations as he moves the narrative along with words like then and when and now. This is a a story that's taking place chronologically here as we look at it. First, what you and I are going to see as you're taking notes is we see the providence and purposes of Jesus. We see the providence and purposes of Jesus. Now, in Luke chapter 8, read with me in verse 26 through 27, just as to familiarize ourselves once again. It says, then they sailed, speaking of Jesus and disciples, they sailed to the country of Gersenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. 
In today's passage, Luke tells us why Jesus wanted to go across the lake in the first place. And I believe I have a map here to kind of show you where Jesus is. And you see there's Galilee and you'll see Capernaum there. And you may even see Nain. That's where Jesus was. And then he travels across the lake heading from your left to your right. And you'll see there at the top, you'll see the Sea of Galilee. And then you'll see the, city, the, the region of Ten. That's the Nicopolis, 10 cities there. Jesus is going to that area. After Jesus calms the storms, they finish sailing across to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, where the population, as you can see, is largely Gentiles. This is not a Jewish section of Palestine, but mainly Gentiles. This is evident by the presence of a large herd of pigs, an animal, an animal that was considered uh, ceremoniously unclean and not lawful to eat or even to handle by the Jews. The Decapolis was a league of ten cities that enjoyed some autonomy from Roman rule. Now as we continue in the narrative, Luke writes that once Jesus and his disciples disembarked from the boat, a man possessed by a demonic spirit comes to the shore to confront Jesus. Jesus had a divine appointment with this man who was suffering from a supernatural force that was just as powerful and devastating to him as the storm that the disciples had faced. And like the disciples, only Jesus is going to be able to deliver this man from his enslavement. And as Jesus earlier had pointed out in his ministry, he was to proclaim good news to the poor. To proclaim liberty to the captives. The recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who were oppressed. And never claimed the year of the Lord's favor. In this largely Gentile region of Palestine, Jesus had determined that he would compassionately and, and uh, supernaturally minister to this unnamed man. Secondly, we read of the plight of the man. So not only do we see the purpose of Jesus, the providence, but we also now see the plight of the man. In Luke chapter 8, verse 27 and 29, we read that for a long time, this man had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. Luke writes an editorial, night, uh, editorial note saying there in the parentheses, for many a time it had seized him, speaking of the demon. And he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles by the populace. But he would break the bonds and he would be driven by the demon into the desert. Luke describes the terrible condition of this man. We are not given his name. Just a description of the effect that the demon's possession had on him. The editors of the ESV study Bible notes that the man's demonization is evident and his social isolation, and his superhuman strength, and his self-destructive tendencies. So you got to, as we, we come to this man, his body and his mind has been poached and possessed by demons. It is no longer his to control. He's tortured and tormented. He is naked and he is isolated. He is homeless and ostracized. He is bound and gagged, enslaved by demons and men alike. In Mark's gospel, we find that he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. The plight of this man was something that you and I really can't understand. This man's plight was something we could not understand. This man's condition could not be cured by family, by medical, 
or pharmaceutical intervention. He would need more than a self-help book, a self-motivational seminar, or a self-makeover. This man was not even in control of his own faculties. His prospects of deliverance were so dim, he had been consigned to face his fate alone. His only hope was a savior who would take compassion on his plight. Thirdly, we read of the plea of the demons. In verse 28 through 31, read that the demons immediately recognized Jesus. It says, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. And then in verse 30, Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. We have read earlier of Jesus' interaction with demons before. They would cry out time and time again his identity, shrieking out in terror, begging him to leave them alone. Here Luke writes that as Jesus began to cast them out, the attempt to control Jesus by naming and identifying him. Their twisted demonic minds thought that they could thwart Jesus' authority. However, they were sorely mistaken. We see them paying homage to Jesus by falling down to their knees. However, it was not in worship, but in mockery. The demons grudgingly show respect because they recognize Jesus' superiority over them. Knowing that Jesus has the authority to send them to the abyss, the temporary holding place of where demons are today. They begged Jesus to leave them be. Leave us be. Ironically, the torturer has now become the tortured. Now, Jesus asked the demon's name, not because he needed to know the name of the demon to cast it out, but to give us evidence of the extent of the poor man's suffering. The demon replies that his name is Legion. Now, whether that was his real name or not, we we don't really know, but it was probably more of a reference to how many demons possess this man. Now, Luke points out that, or I'm sorry, uh, that that, um, a Roman legion consisted of up to 6,000 men. It says that many demons had entered him. The witnesses to this event would have readily understood that the severity of this man's situation And now they understood why he was so powerful and was able to have like superhuman strength. He was so powerful and so tortured. Couldn't even imagine that type of possession, that type of oppression in a man's life. Fourthly, we see the strange event of the pillaging of the pigs. You know my my love for alliteration, so you're going to see a lot of P's here. The pillaging of the pigs. Verse 32, now there was a large herd of pigs and they were feeding there on the hillside and they begged him to let them enter them. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and they entered the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Mark's gospel of this record notes that the herd was 2,000 pigs, not a small group of swine. And not wanting to be cast in the abyss, which is the temporary holding of of where the demons are today, according to Peter and to Jude. They beg him to send them into the pigs. Why these pigs? No idea. It's not really clear. 
Because as soon as they enter into the pigs and they're cast out, I'm assuming as soon as they're, they're cast out, they sin the, and, and enter the pigs. They, 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 the pigs uh, respond in frenzy and, and, they, and they run off a cliff and, and wind up running right into the sea. However, it does give tangible evidence of the man's healing as it isn't usually normal to see a herd of 2,000 swine start a stampede and take a nosedive off a cliff in the sea. You don't see it every day. Now, we've always heard that pigs can't fly, but now you and I conclude that pigs can neither float nor swim. No reason is given on why Jesus permitted this, why he sent them into the demons into the pigs, or even the ethics of his decision to do so regarding the destruction of the, power of the pigs' owners. These pig owners, their livelihood is now gone. Their herd, their food, their money, it's gone. We'll leave that for another day. But the point of this event is evidence of Christ is saving this man from demon possession. In this case, a deliverance from a host of demons. Fifthly, we see the panicking of the people. The panicking of the people. Look with me in Luke chapter 34, or chapter 8, verse 34. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, all 2,000 other pigs just in a frenzy run off the cliff. I'm sure their mouths are just wide open. Like what in the world is happening there? And this is more than just, this is their, their livelihood. This is how they are going to feed their family. This is, how the, this is the food for the village. Once they saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then the people went out to see what had happened and they came to Jesus and they found the man from whom the demons had gone. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus. He's clothed, it says, and in his right mind. And how did they respond? They were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gesenes asked him to depart from them. For they were seized with great fear. What a strange response to you and I. What a spectacle this must have been. Word quickly spreads around the area. People came out to see what the commotion was all about. What is going on? What is everyone talking about? And you can see their fear was most likely brought about by noticing that the pigs who would normally be feeding along the fields were missing. Their livelihood, their food source gone and wasted. Then to top it off, they must have been shocked and surprised to see this man sitting down with Jesus, dressed with clothes on and carrying on a normal conversation. Something has gone different. These events caused them to be fearful of Jesus and they demand that he leaves the area. What a sad commentary this last part of this verse is. It's a typical response of men to display of the compassion, the power of God, is that they would want nothing to do with him. Lastly, the last observation, Luke records the praising or the proclamation of the man. At the end of verse, of, at the end of verse 37, we read that Jesus listens to their demands. So he gets up, it says, and he goes to the boat and returns back to the west side of the Galilee. 
But before that, he goes back in time and says, then the man from whom the demons had gone begged Jesus that he might be with me or be with him. Let me go with you. Let me, let me be one of your disciples. But Jesus sent him away saying, no, return to your old home. And declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This man delivered from the demons responds with gratitude and worship, totally different from the rest of the people. He recognizes his plight. He recognizes what Christ has done for him. So he is very grateful and he wants to worship. He wants to follow Jesus. He wants to be part of his ministry. He begs Jesus for permission. May I follow you? He had a taste of Jesus' authority and power and he desired more of Jesus. Instead, Jesus told the man to stay behind and to share his story, share his testimony of how Jesus had delivered him. Left to their own devices, the people that fear Jesus would spread a much different word than what this man would share. Mark in his gospel records that this is exactly what this man did. And that the result of his praising and proclamation, his sharing of the story, was that everyone marveled at what Christ had done for this man. Interestingly, Jesus' commands to this witness is much different from his usual command to keep silent and secret about what he had done on the other side of Galilee, on the west side. Most likely it's because Jesus knew that the mainly Gentile population that he had ministered right then and there would not respond to that messianic cult that infected Jerusalem and the other parts of the Jewish population that he normally ministered. And as you and I, and I encourage you, join with us as we go through Holy Week, doing that each and every night, you will see that that messianic cult is going to come to its, 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 its climax with Jesus at the cross. What an interesting and exciting action-packed story. What a great deliverance. But now I want us to consider this narrative as he gives it to Luke's original readers. What, what would it have meant to them? What does it mean for you and I? How does this give us certainty about who Jesus is, his identity, his ministry, his purpose? What is God revealing us through this deliverance of this man? Because we've been looking at in our Sunday school about God's sovereignty of history. In other words, this, this was no coincidence, but this man was created so that he might be possessed by these demons so that Jesus may have this opportunity, this divine providential meeting so that he may deliver this man. So what does this have for you and I? I want to consider three main truths. The first one is we see that Jesus has authority and power, not over just the natural world, but also the supernatural. We don't like to think about the supernatural world except in fantasy books, Lord of the Rings type stuff, Harry Potter, or maybe in our movies and TV shows. And I want to just encourage you to be careful with those types of things because the supernatural world is very, very real. The demons recognize Jesus' authority and his ability to exercise judgment over them. One day, even the demons will have to stand before God and give account. 
When you and I think of hell and the place where all those who are lost, all those who reject Jesus, we think, well, God made that for us. But the Bible tells us that he actually made that for the angels and the demons. We will be joining them in the last resting place, the, the, the lake of fire. They know that Jesus has the ability to exercise. As we look in scripture, there are some that are already under judgment in Jude and in 2 Peter. They feared permanent confinement in the abyss. So they asked to be allowed to go into the pigs so they could have another moment of freedom. In other words, they, they did not want that day of judgment to be now. They did not want to be permanently confined as some of their brothers and sisters or I use that term in a man's sense, in in demons. There are some demons now that are chained, that are waiting for judgment. There are some demons that have been allowed freedom to roam this world and to do the adversary's work. There's a famous quote that says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convicting the world that he what? Didn't exist. There is no demons. There is no Satan. There is no devil. Which is correct in many ways. For if we deny the existence of the devil, then we can deny the existence of God. If there's no devil, there is no God. If there's no God, there's no devil. So that makes me think much easier about things. However, it's not what scripture has revealed to us. But I've also seen the opposite error, as many of you have as well where people believe that the devil is behind every sickness and every malady and every event. The comedian Flip Wilson had a famous tagline where he would declare, remember this, the devil made me do it. And so we believe that everyone has a demon. So there's two opposite errors. He either doesn't exist or he's behind everything and I need to exercise demons. But it's important for you and I to think biblically even about the existence of the demon and the devil. Pastor and radio host Carl Gallup says this, I know that some people will have a difficult time with all this talk about demons. But the truth is the Bible is clear on this topic. There is a demonic, evil, and incredibly dark spiritual side to the experience of human existence. Now, some of you can say amen because you have seen that, experienced that. Others may not. Life has been good. But we hear stories of missionaries from third world countries who will tell you very real experience of demonic worship and oppression. Right now in the news today, I'm not, I didn't get it prepared and, and I don't think I would ever share that, but there's a famous rapper, I can't remember his name, but he has a new video out where it's satanic worshiping. And he has a new tennis shoe that's come out. The tennis shoe has a drop of blood in it and made of something strange. I, I, you know, I, I don't, it wasn't from the Babylon Bee either. So this is something that's very real. And we have a, a, a difficulty with it. And we can sometimes go all to one side or one to the other, but we must think biblically and understand. The Apostle Paul warns of the influence of Satan and his demons behind false prophets. When you and I think of false prophets, and there are many, I have no problem naming them. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, it's here on the screen, he says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan does what? 
disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deed. So what is behind a false prophet? Demons. The devil. I'm not saying that they're possessed, but they are influenced. They are being manipulated. And there are pastors and others that, are, that, we, that people follow that are, that are truly false prophets and false apostles. We must mark them and be, be aware of them and run from them. He also remarks that worship of other gods is actually the worship of demons. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, what do I imply then? Speaking of, should I eat food? The question is, should I eat food that's sacrificed to the idols? Back in those days, you would go to a, a restaurant, say in Corinth. And as you go there, you would see that there would be an idol that they would worship. And so they would take the food that they're making in their kitchen and they would offer it to this God. And then you would go and you would sit down and they would serve that to you. And so the question that Christians are saying, hey, listen, as I go into the marketplace, I notice that they're worshiping a God and that they're offering this food to a God. Should I eat it? Well, he says, what do I imply? The food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything. He's saying, well, you know what? That, that really doesn't make it an idol is nothing when it compared to God. But he says, no, I imply that what pa pagans sacrifice, they sacrifice, they offer to demons, not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and of the table of demons. Hence why we come together and he's speaking there of the Lord's Supper is that you and I, we cannot be worshiping something other than God. Anything that you are worshiping, that is of Satan. And that could be your family. That could be your retirement. It could be your job. It could be a, it could be a basketball team for all that matters. Those are demonic influences that set themselves, anything that sets themselves above God. But in this case, we're talking about true gods that they would worship. Zeus, you know, Athena. All the other, I'm not going to be able to name them all at this moment. Those things were actually uh, perpetrated by demon worship. Wayne Grumman writes that demons are evil angels who sin against God and who continually work evil in the world. They are beings with no hope of grace nor salvation. You must remember that. That's why the angels look at salvation and they don't understand it because they do not receive the grace of God. For those who fell, it is just judgment. Their end is written and cannot be changed. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, writes that the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, those who left heaven, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under the glooming darkness until the judgment of the great day. As I said before, there are some demons that are chained waiting for judgment. There are others for some reason that God has allowed into the world. We do not know their, their, their number. We don't know how many there are, but they're there. Matthew in his gospel quotes Jesus remarking to the wicked, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Knowing that they seek to do all the harm they can, since they know that they are hold in judgment. 
And knowing that their end is sure, that punishment and exile to the lake of fire explains their reaction to Jesus. Do not throw us to the abyss. Let us continue to roam the world doing our evil deeds. Even the demons fear God. And they shudder. More than we indeed we do. For man does not neither fear God nor shudder at his name or his works. So Jesus has authority and power of the supernatural. You and I should not fear. Greater is he that is in us. We said that verse at the beginning. We cannot be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Christ is on our side. Number two, the second truth that we learn here is that Jesus will receive and cleanse even the vilest of sinners. Even those that have been possessed. Even those that are considered unclean. Even those that the world even hates. Jesus is willing to travel, to interact, to heal, and to rescue the lost and the perishing. This is his purpose, his mission, and his ministry. Jesus would have been perfectly righteous in leaving this man in his condition since he was a Gentile. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus marked that I was sent only to the lost sheep of, uh, the, lost sheep of the house of Israel. Yet he travels across the lake just to meet this man and deliver him from his condition, his plight. This man was not even a Jew. He was not a child of Abraham. He was a man who was not looking for a savior and a redeemer. He was not looking and waiting for a Messiah. Jesus, though, demonstrates his love and compassion and mercy in delivering this man from this demonic prison. Demons are bent on destruction. Now, you know, there's times where I tell you, there's, there's times that you need to take my word and make sure that you, you know what's my word and what's the word of God. So I'm going to step down just for a moment and talk about my own mere opinion. When I say demons are bent on destruction, my opinion is that they cut, that people who cut and mark and destroy their bodies is an attempt to mar the image of God. When you look at demons and demon possession, they are always destroying the body, the soul, the heart, the image of God. And when people today, you find themselves, whether cutting or marring their body or changing it with abnormal cosmetics, I believe that's another sense of demonic oppression or influence. I believe that's what's behind this transgenderism where we take a healthy male and mutilate him. We take a healthy female and we mutilate her. This is my opinion, but I believe it's upheld in Scripture. I said we need to be very, very careful with these types of things. Satan and his adversaries are always trying to mar the image of God. This man's life was awful. We do this in the same way. Many times you and I can be driving down the street and we can see a man maybe acting like this man. He's in the middle of the street, right? Yelling and screaming. His pants are down almost around his ankles. His spittle is all over the place. He's crazy. His body is all marked up. He's, he's been possessed by different types of addiction. 
That may very well be a demon possession. I do not know. It could be a psychiatric issue as well. All those things work in it. But what do you and I do when we see someone like that? We treat him just as they were treating this man. We mar the image of God when we belittle someone who is hurting. Luke details his suffering, his physical, his mental, his emotional and social hurting. He was considered less than human by those around him. They try in vain to control and to subdue him. His cries echoing throughout the night among the cemeteries, mountains of the area. Daryl Bach remarks that the other human forces and agencies have not been able to contain this man. He could not be bound. But also, let's contrast the man before and after as we think of Jesus delivering this man. That was before. Look at him after he meets Jesus. Jesus clothes the naked. He gives acceptance to those that are isolated. Instead of being driven by the demon, he was setting. Instead of being without clothes, he was dressed. Instead of being among the tombs, he was at Jesus' feet. Instead of being chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he was in his right mind. This even more than the drowning of the swine demonstrates the demons had left him. The demons' prisoners have been freed from their oppression. And let me share with you, the same thing can happen today. You may not be the demon possession your issue, but God can deliver you. God rescues the perishing. I love there's an old song, Christ receives sinful men. It says, sinners, Jesus will receive. Sound this word of grace to all who the heavenly pathway leave, all who linger and all who fall. Come and he will give you rest. Trust him for his word is plain. He will take the sinfulness. Christ receiveth sinful men. Now my heart condemns me not. Pure before I stand, the law I stand. He who cleansed me from all spot is satisfied its last demands. Christ receiveth sinful men, even me with all my sin. Purged from every spot and stain, heaven with him. I enter in. Let me end. Is Jesus will receive and cleanse even the vilest of sinners, including you, including those that you and your family and your family may not think will ever be saved. Paul called himself the chiefest of sinners. I think we should stand and call ourselves the chiefest of sinners if we truly knew ourselves. Then thirdly, the third truth I think we believe we see in this scripture is people will witness the power of Jesus. They will witness the power of Jesus, but yet still reject him. This is the saddest of all truths. Luke writes that the reaction of the crowd is fear and the rejection of Christ. Fear of what Jesus did, ignorance of who he is, and selfishness and resentness because they lost of their livelihood of the pigs. They believed that the cost of this man's deliverance was too high. They cared more for the pigs than they did for this man. The man had been a nuisance, probably a source of constant trouble to them. But the herd of 2,000 pigs was worth a lot of money. The cost of this man's deliverance was way too high for their view. Just as we learn from the parable of the soil, 
The works of Jesus fell on the hard path of these people's hearts. It was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air devoured it. And you and I know Satan took the word before it could even fall down onto the path. This answers the question of why God just doesn't do miracles today to convince people of his existence. Why, why doesn't he just skywrite? Why doesn't he go and just heal people right now and people will just then believe they'll see all the works of, of God and they'll believe. But just as Jesus told the rich man in Luke chapter 16, if they do not hear the Moses and the prophets speaking of the Old Testament, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. People will hear the word of God. They will see the work of God in your life and they will still reject Christ. <clears throat> this is a sad note, but you and I must understand it. This should not stop us from preaching and reclaiming the gospel. It did not for this man. The results are not up to us. This goes back to the parable of the soil that we talked about several weeks ago. But in the supernatural working of the Holy Spirit, for you and I, let us commit to continue to do the works that Christ has called us to in proclaiming, listening, and obeying his word. We must be the fragrance and aroma to those that the Father is drawing to himself. Would you please take your Bibles as we come near now to just put it to our lives. Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. In this account, not only does Jesus deliver this man physically, and spiritually, and emotionally, mentally from the demon possession, but he also redeems this man's soul for eternity. See, for most of us, we think that being saved from the demon was the most important thing, but what we see here is know that he is saved for eternity. He took care of this man's immediate need, demon possession, clothing, a place to live, being in his right mind. But he also gave him something much better, that salvation. And by the way, many of us, many times, we're, 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 we're concentrating on the, on the little things rather than on the big things that God has given us or hasn't given us. Jesus has done the same thing for us. Through Christ's death, through his burial and resurrection, we have been delivered from the, work of, from the works and the enslavement of Satan. We may not have suffered from demon possession, but we've all been delivered by the mercy of God. Amen? Paul reminds the Christians at Ephesus, at Ephesus excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2, look at verse 1. He says, Once you were dead in the trespasses and the sins, and once you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? That's Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of a body and the mind, and were by nature, we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were like this man. We were this man. But God... Circle that if you have your Bible, but God. Great, 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 great conjunction there. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love which with he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. Not when we had gotten our back together. Not when we have gotten our self-motivation together. Not when we cleaned ourselves up, but while we were still dead. 
By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Amen. We were once this man, but Jesus delivers. This mercy, this grace, this wonder works of deliverance should cause us to follow this man's example. Amen? We should respond with gratitude and worship. Like this man, we need to sit at the feet of Jesus, listening to his word and giving thanks for Jesus' work on our behalf. Like this man, we should obey Christ's command to go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. You see, you have a story. Your story is an important tool for sharing the gospel, for sharing Christ. I call it the second greatest ever story ever told. You've heard of the greatest story ever told, the the old movie, but your story is the second greatest story ever told. You may think, well, my testimony is not very exciting or my testimony is not powerful. However, your journey from darkness to light is very powerful, and it's also a miracle. You need to recognize that. You are a walking miracle, a miracle of a new birth, one who was dead, who is now alive, sharing our faith and proclaiming the goodness, the mercy, and grace of God is not an option, but it's a command. It's a responsibility. It is an obligation as well as a privilege. Today, I'm going to call you to respond to God's wonderful grace with gratitude and worship and sharing your testimony for you too have had a divine deliverance and redemption. Let us live that out and share it with others. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as well as Randy and prepare for pastor's prayer. Just want you to take a moment to pause and just consider what we see here in Scripture. And then pray and say, Father, how should I respond? Am I, am I responding in fear, fear of other people in sharing the gospel? Do, do, do I think the cost is too high to follow you? Father, help me to be that man to lovingly and compassionately share with others. Let me see those that are hurting. Let me see them as image bearers of you and share how Christ has changed my life and is willing to do it for them as well. And we respond to the Spirit's work. For God is good, is he not? Randy, would you come and share Pastor Spirit with us? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.